Hi everybody, it's James Rudd here with The Heart Podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michelle Kelsey from the Duke Clinical Research Institute in North Carolina in the USA. And we're talking about an editorial that Dr. Kelsey wrote, which is entitled Towards a Personalized Approach for Obesity Treatment, One Size Does Not Fit All. We talk about weight loss strategies and a clinical trial which took place in the Netherlands. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm also really grateful for the positive reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps us to reach new audiences. And I'd be really grateful if you would kindly promote the podcast as widely as you can, particularly on social media. And if you enjoy it, that would be great. If you don't enjoy it, please let me know on Twitter at JHFRUD and let me know what we can do to make it better for you. Enjoy the interview. Many thanks for joining me today, Dr. Kelsey. Maybe we can start by you telling the heart audience who you are and where you work. What do you do? Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be here chatting with you. Um, I am a cardiology fellow in my fourth year at Duke University Medical Center and a, a clinical research fellow at the Duke Clinical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina. Fantastic. And you've recently written an editorial um, which is called Towards a Personalized Approach for Obesity Treatment, One Size Does Not Fit All. And this was an editorial piece um, in response to an original piece of research we had submitted to Heart, uh, which is called Weight Management and Determinants of Weight Change in Patients with Coronary Artery Disease. And it's by first author Dr. Thiessen from Amsterdam. And maybe we can start, Michelle, by getting a more general picture. So how big an issue is obesity worldwide? And what kind of health impacts does it cause? We're probably familiar with some of them, but in your editorial, you list some others that I certainly wasn't familiar with. So how big an issue is this? Yeah, obesity is a growing public health concern, both here in the United States and in the United Kingdom and globally. Um, I would say based on national health survey data here, the prevalence is probably approaching close to 40%. And that means obesity with BMI greater than 30. Um, Globally, the rates kind of vary by country. I would say it's anywhere from 10 to 30%. And I think the UK is probably close to 30% figure as well. Um, and there are numerous health impacts of obesity. Um, most prominently, we worry about cardiovascular disease given the association with type 2 diabetes, um, association with hypertension, association with dyslipidemia. Um, but there are a variety of other uh, health consequences, probably affecting nearly every organ system in the body in a different way. It can cause musculoskeletal issues, joint problems, arthritis. Um, problems with sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, um, hypoventilation, restrictive lung disease, um, all kinds of impacts. Yeah, so a massive problem and also increasing in many parts of the world in terms of um, the incidence. Yeah. And so tell me about the, um, the study that you wrote the editorial on. What were the authors trying to do in that study? What was the, the thing that they were setting out to investigate? Yeah, so this is a really interesting study and really important work. Um, this is a, a secondary analysis of the response to clinical trial looking at predictors of successful weight loss. Um, response two is um, the randomized evaluation of secondary prevention by outpatient nurse specialist two trial. Um, it was a multi-center study, it was conducted in the Netherlands. Um, and this trial studied various lifestyle interventions in patients with coronary artery disease. Um, and this specific secondary analysis looked at which people were successful with weight loss um, and um, what predicted successful weight loss, specifically in the overweight category of people in the trial. 
Okay, and what what was the population that they studied and, and sort of how many subjects were enrolled? And what were the interventions that they tried? So they looked at um, patients with coronary artery disease who had been recently hospitalized or recently underwent revascularization, so sort of a higher risk population. Um, and in the original trial, they looked at um, participants who had at least one of three lifestyle-related risk factors. So either they were smoking, either they were inactive physically, or they were overweight. And um, overweight was defined as BMI greater than or equal to 27 um, for this particular study. And in the original trial, they were randomized either to usual care, which is cardiac rehab and standard sort of follow-ups, um, or they were randomized to a community-based lifestyle intervention. Um, and they were, they were allowed free enrollment in some of these community programs. So for the people that were smoking, they could choose to go to a smoking cessation program. Um, there was a physical activity program, and then there was a weight reduction program, um, which was Weight Watchers. And so in this secondary analysis, um, they looked at all the individuals in the response to trial um, with a BMI greater than or equal to 27. And they looked at what happened to their weight over 12 months. They looked at changes in body composition. Um, they looked at change in cardiovascular risk factors um, and then more granular survey data on you know, demographics, um, predictors of motivation, um, all of these other things that they, that they asked questions about. Okay, and what were the principal findings of the study? Yeah, so first of all, response two was a very successful clinical trial. They had um, 27% of the people in the intervention arm uh, lost greater than 5% uh, of their body weight at 12 months compared to 14% controls. And that was even more successful when they looked at the overweight population, um, which was 30, 32% compared to 16%. So very successful overall. Um, but there was a lot of treatment variability um, in, in the population um, of overweight individuals in terms of uh, how much weight they lost and, and what happened, whether they gained weight. And so the, the range of treatment variability, you know, uh, people with BMI greater than 27 lost up to 25 kilograms or they gained up to 23 kilograms. So really the full spectrum of outcomes, even though the majority did lose weight, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of difference in the, in the outcome effect. So this was sustained weight loss, wasn't it? So you said that the, they were measuring the effect one year after enrollment in the study. So actually quite an interesting way of, of looking at it and, and maybe may relevant more real world, um, you know, where, where people may have an intervention for a short time, but then the weight may go back on again. So as you say, definitely the authors need to be congratulated for this. And um, why do you think there was such a variability in, in the response? You've mentioned, you've mentioned some significant people who lost loads of weight, people who gained weight. Why, what do you think the um, determinants of success for losing weight in this type of study are? Yeah, you know, I would say that it looks like a, a startling amount of variability, but it's about on par, I think, with a lot of other studies okay. um, that look at weight change. Um, so, you know, when we look at diet intervention studies, look at physical activity intervention studies, even look at bariatric surgery, there is a wide range of, um, of response to these particular interventions. Um, and I think you make a great point about following people out to 12 months um, is really important. But even if you look even further out, the variability gets even even greater uh, as you go further out over time. Okay. Um, and I think you know the the great thing that the authors did in this study was looking at trying to understand what what predicts that response because 
you know, what we're trying to do is match the right intervention to the right patient. So understanding what works for some people is incredibly important to, to developing a, a successful weight loss intervention program. And carry on, were there any specific uh, factors that the authors noted were important in predicting success? Yeah, so some of the things that they found was was somewhat expected, I would say. You know, people who expressed early motivation were more successful with weight loss. Um, people who participated in the program regularly were more successful with weight loss. Um, but there were some other things that were maybe a little bit less expected. Older adults uh, were more likely to lose weight. Um, people with lower education level more likely to lose weight. Um, and people that were non-smokers um, at baseline were more likely to lose weight. Now, the smoking, I think, is is a little bit interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of data that people that quit smoking right after myocardial infarction can sometimes gain a little bit of weight, like around five kilograms um, as they're quitting. Um, and so I would say that this secondary analysis sort of found similar findings um, that people who smoked at baseline or people who quit smoking during the course of the intervention um, sometimes gained a little bit of weight. So that was one factor. But I think that this is a really important study because it tells us about how to operationalize weight loss after a coronary event and who might be best selected. You know, um, people that are motivated may be the right people to, to pull into an intervention or people that have time to go to all of these classes might have might be most successful. Um, so it helps us kind of match the right person to the right uh, weight management intervention. It seems a bit tough, though, on the, on the, the folks that are less motivated and perhaps you know, are working many jobs, don't have much time, um, that this this particular kind of program, which seems great, is not going to reach them. So I guess we do need other measures, right, to, to incentivize them as well. Yeah. You mentioned in your editorial that the factors identified by the authors only explain the R-square would 0.28. So in other words, sort of 75% of roughly of the um, variability was not explained by those factors. Uh, and you, you sort of hint in the editorial that there are many other things that could be important in determining whether people respond to weight loss measures. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that we get a lot of information about um, behavioral factors and their psychosocial factors. Um, but I think there are a lot of other things, as you say, that can influence success in weight loss. Um, you know, there's certainly some environmental factors that matter, you know, what resources are available to you, what food is in your neighborhood, how walkable your neighborhood is, do you have a place where you can exercise, you know, is your household supportive, do you have people you can rely on. Um, and then there's other levels of, of behavioral and psychosocial factors that also matter, you know, exactly what you're eating, exactly how much you're doing. Um, so there's certainly more levels. And and I think even beyond that, there's probably biological factors that we're learning about more, um, like the, the composition of the microbiome, what's happening in your metabolism, um, what's happening, what's the state of inflammation in your body. All of these things probably play a role that we're learning more about, um, but we, we have a long way to go. And I guess we're not at the stage yet where you'd be recommending sampling the microbiome or genetic testing in patients to try and unlock that puzzle a little bit more, right? We're not quite there, I guess. As we tackle this large problem, I think that we need as much information as we can get. You know, when we're doing weight management studies, I think that it would be helpful to collect as much as we can so that we can learn about what's successful. You know, the uh, NIH has proposed this framework called ADOPT, which is accumulating data to pr optimally predict obesity treatment. Um, and they really recommend a whole uh, panel of testing um, in these weight, weight loss studies. Um, 
covering everything from behavioral factors, psychosocial factors, biological factors, environmental factors, a very deep phenotyping in weight loss studies. Because as we realize that the treatment is so variable, it means that we have so much more to learn and there's so much more we need to know about who's successful and who's not successful. Um, even if we don't know what all of that data is gonna look like yet, um, I think that there's a lot that we could do to advance the field by collecting all the information and looking at it. And indeed, you make some really good recommendations in your editorial for, I guess, for future um, researchers uh, to, to gather this kind of data. Just before we wrap up, can you tell me a little bit more about the microbiome? We, we seem to hear about this everywhere and you, you can go to the store and find yogurts and all kinds of things that are supposed to improve things. Um, how, do, how do you think the microbiome or what is it, first of all, and how might it influence obesity and, and inflammation? Yeah, you know, the, the bacteria in your gut um, affect what you absorb and how you digest what you eat. Um, there's some evidence in animal models that the composition of the microbiome can affect adiposity and the response to a weight loss intervention. Um, we think that certain bacteria, certain proportions of certain bacteria um, might predispose you to better weight loss success. And we think that when you lose weight, something about your microbiome changes. And when you gain it back, something about your microbiome changes. So I would say that we don't necessarily have a causal relationship worked out here yet, but there's a lot of interesting association and a lot of maybe potential targets for therapy in the future. And anything else you'd like to share? Any new drugs or interventions that listeners might like to know about or, or public health measures that might work in obesity? Anything that... Um, is on your mind that you, you think people would like to hear about? Yeah, I would say that the injectable semaglutide that's recently come out here in the US, um, which is a GLP-1 receptor agonist, is very promising for weight loss. Um, people lost up to 15 kilograms in the, in the trial and it was published. Um, I think there's also some exciting data about the use of SGLT2 inhibitors. People seem to lose a little bit of weight with those medications, and we know that they have cardiovascular benefit now. Right. Um, so I think all of those things are very promising. But as we talked about, we certainly have a lot more to do in this field. And I, I would say that probably the most effective intervention will probably combine something pharmacologic with something behavioral, uh, addressing all of the factors that we talked about at once. We have some government initiatives here in the UK, um, such as the, the banning of advertising of some sugary beverages to, you know, during the time that kids might be watching TV, uh, which seems to have had a positive effect. Are there similar things happening in the US and elsewhere that you're aware of that, um, or is the food lobby very strong in the US and, and stopping that happening? <laughs> You know, um, obesity is a public health problem and mm. because it's so prevalent and affects people across the lifespan and across the world that probably these massive public health interventions are needed to really make effective change. Um, I think that a lot of these incentives can work in the short term, but there's always the worry that if you remove the stimulus, the effect wanes over time. Mm. So things that are a little bit more integrated might be more beneficial. And I, you know, I think there's a concern also that sometimes um, a tax structure can differentially affect people of, of different socioeconomic right. status who don't have access to food. Um, so I think that probably a large scale intervention is needed, but I'm not sure that we, we have the right answer for that yet. Yeah, as you say in your piece, it's probably a multi-pronged approach that is required, isn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time, Dr. Kelsey. It's been great to to catch up with you. And uh, I will make the editorial free if it's not already free for a few weeks after the podcast comes out so everybody can enjoy it. 
And also the original paper will also be free so people can read that as well. If people want to get in touch with you, are you on social media anywhere that you recommend people go to read about your, your research and your work? Yes, um, I'm on Twitter at MDKelseyMD. Fantastic, brilliant. Great, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.